Please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, the second chapter. When Mary Lee and I were young, we used to uh, like free things, and one of the free things we liked was uh, going to the zoo in Madison. And after Heather was born, we'd take Heather with us. And uh, the thing we really liked about the zoo, I wish they had it here in Bloomington, was the monkey cage. There was a monkey cage that looked kind of like a very high-top pie, and it had three or four different sections. So as you'd look at it, it would have the, the wire uh, cage the whole way around. It kind of actually looked like one of the UFOs that Jody has told me he's seen. Um, no longer will ever be fully comfortable with Jody. <laughs> So if you can picture a UFO that don't exist, but nevertheless, what people say they look like. And as you walk around, you can see all these different compartments of monkeys. Meryl and I used to sit there and watch the monkeys. And uh, the thing I remember about the monkeys is that they'd all be sitting there doing the things monkeys do, uh, which uh, consists primarily of pulling uh, lice and uh, chiggers or whatever they pulled out of each other's uh, hair. They'd sit there one behind the other working on a shoulder, you know, you know, eating whatever they picked out. Or the mothers would be nursing their babies. There'd be little family groupings. It was hard to tell the sex of the monkeys, but usually if there was sort of a bigger one sitting up uh, over in this direction, you might think that the mother and the children are here and there's dad over there looking on, right? What always happened was at some point, some monkey uh, had a fit and decided that they were going to polarize the cage. So they'd come running out. There's this little tube down at the bottom in the center, and they can go to the other cages by going into the center and then over into another one. Some monkey would come out of the hole and would, like, go over and punch somebody in the face. Now, that's not what they did. I don't know what they did, but it was clear it was an act of aggression. And immediately you'd hear this, and all the monkeys would, like, dash for the corners. And there that big old bad man would sit in the middle, the monkey, and everybody would have been ruined in their family gatherings and their nursing of their children. In other words, the minute there was a divisive monkey that came in and did an act of aggression, the whole cage went to heck. No longer was the child nursing, Now the child was up on the mother's back, and the mother was up in the corner and going like this. In other words, if any of you come near me and my baby, I will kill you. Right? It only took one. All it required was one monkey who came in there and did an act of aggression, and everything nurturing and good happening in that cage ended. And that's exactly what a church is like. It only takes one. And then all of a sudden, all the teaching and all the preaching and all the mothering and all the fathering and all the children and all the honoring and all the submitting and all the this just sort of luxurious love that all of us have experienced in churches, it all shuts down and the mothers are in the corner with their babies on their backs going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we are. We're a bunch of monkeys. That's all we are. The evolutionists have told you that. It's true. (laughs) 
And that's what's going on in the best church in the New Testament, which is the church in Philippi. The best one. The most intense thing being dealt with there is the division in the church. That's the best church in the New Testament. So for the first chapter, the Apostle Paul is going on about various things. And then in the second chapter, he begins to get into the mud, down in the dirt with the people. And he begins to deal with them with the prevailing sin, the, the besetting sin of their church. And it is this division. And here's what he says, if you'll read with me in Philippians chapter 2. He says to them this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. That ain't going to happen. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, is that the way they would have heard it? Is that what they would have heard? Is that how he would have said it? Let's say instead of writing it, he was actually bringing it to them, and he was speaking it in their presence. Is that how he would have done it? Therefore, if there be any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation, if there's any, make my joy. That's not how he would have said it. No. How would he have said it? Well, he would have said it the way my father said it to my brother David and me when we were up in the boundary waters. Um, David and I are both pretty intense, if you've ever been around us. And uh, we were on a canoe trip. We talked my dad into going canoeing in the Boundary Waters, which is just wacko. My father grew up in New York City, and he wasn't a camper at all, let alone a canoeer in the Boundary Waters. But somehow we prevailed upon him that this would be, you know, the last, uh, the last party. And my dad came into the Boundary Waters with Nathan, David, and Timothy. Now, if you've ever canoed, you know that... It can be very important who's reading the map, right? It's only slightly less important than who's at the stern. And if you're on a big lake and you have a map, one of the only things that will help you to know where you're headed is a compass so that you can orient yourself on the map. So you can try to guess where the portage is and where it isn't. So if you go the whole way across the lake and you think where the portage is is there and you end up over here, you've wasted an awful lot of paddling. And if you're a feather dipper, it doesn't matter. But if you're a real paddler, it does matter. It's efficiency. It's like conservation of energy, right? If there's a campsite that's nice, you remember it. There's the dot. And you end up going over here, then you have to double your effort. So in other words, who reads the map is who conserves the energy of everybody paddling. In our case, there were four people paddling. So, of course, I was convinced that I was the person that should read the map. But my brother David was convinced that he should read the map. I don't remember who had the compass, but that's what the fight was over. Because a map without a compass isn't as good as a map with a compass. So David and I were at it hammer and tongs. When David and I go at it hammer and tongs, it's hammer and tongs. 
And my father, my poor dear father, was in one of the canoes listening to David and me go at it intensely. And what did my dad do? Well, at a certain point, my dad looked at the two of us and my dad said, What if Jesus were watching? And all of a sudden, David and I were fully rebuked. The thought of Jesus seeing what we were doing to each other was despicable. We were despicable. And when my dad got done doing that, what had he done? Well, let's think about what he hadn't done. My dad hadn't looked at the two of us and said, you guys are disgusting. Why don't you grow up? My dad had also not simply cowered in the corner and been a wimp. My father had put him, his love, his honor, his God in the center of a battle between the sons that he loved and called our attention to Jesus Christ and said, What if Jesus were listening to you? Now, let's read it again. Therefore, if there is any encouragement, now do you get it? If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any... And you look at him and you say, oh, Paul, you Jews are always like that. You're over the top. Always overstating. Try understating. It's a good British way. If there's any... Paul, you know there's some. You know, you don't have to exaggerate. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... You know, do you have anything in common with me? Do you have any blessings from God? Do we share together anything of Jesus Christ? And then he says what? He says, then honor Jesus Christ. By being of the same mind. But that's not what he says. What does he actually say? Who's speaking here? Is it Jesus? No. I mean, in one sense, all scriptures God breathes, so it is Jesus speaking. But in another sense, who's speaking? Make what? Make what? Make my joy complete. In other words, he's pointing to Jesus And he's putting himself completely at the apex, at the matrix, at the vortex of the hatred and the fighting and the self-conceit and the self-esteem and everything. He's saying, make my joy complete. In other words, the Apostle Paul is a nursing mother to this church. And he says, if we share anything together, would you please... Make my joy complete. And see, we don't like that. And we don't like it because it's not about Tim. It's about Jesus. We always want our religion to just go straight to God. You know, we don't need any mediator. There's only one mediator. That's Jesus Christ. And so if a pastor says, make my joy, they say, hey, dude, it's not about you. You know, but it is about the pastor. God has been pleased to say to you, 
don't tell me you love me if you hate my, your brother. Okay? The man that says he loves God but hates his brother is a liar. Okay, here we have the Apostle Paul saying, you don't have anything of Jesus Christ, anything of his consolation. Any, any, you, you, you have no desire to make my joy complete. You know, you're verboten, you're out there, you're completely cut off from God. In fact, you don't have the mind of Christ, which being in the form of God thought not. In other words, the next section that comes is talking about Christ's humility. What he does is he makes every single bit of this completely personal, completely. If there's any, if there's any, if there's any, make my joy complete. You cannot have God and despise your brother. And you're all with me on that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I have to love my brother if I love God. I know I'm a liar if I don't do that. And then I tell you, you can't love God without submitting to the officers of a church. And you go, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm okay with fellowship, but I'm not okay with authority. You know, I mean, really, Tim, uh, you're pretty Jewish. You're over the top. You're overstating your case. Look, the Apostle Paul makes this extremely personal, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we always have this habit of saying that the pure objective doctrinal statements of Scripture have absolute authority. But the methods of Scripture are just, you know, things you can pick and choose between. In other words, the fact that Paul's speaking of unity is good, but the fact that he's putting himself at the center and saying, make my joy complete, has absolutely no bearing on our life, because Paul says that he wants them to make his joy complete, and therefore they should be at one with each other, does not mean that if Tim Bailey says, make my joy complete, that that has any bearing on us, because that's a method. And the Bible doesn't teach us methods, it only teaches us truths and doctrines. But I keep telling you, the methods that are used in Scripture are to be for our edification. All Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is profitable. When the Apostle Paul uses methods to appeal to the hearts of his listeners, we are to learn from those methods. And what you're to learn from him saying, make my joy complete, is that a good mother will always put your love for her at the center of you doing what is right. I mean, which of us has any trouble understanding a mother saying, how does your mother feel about that? <laughs> you know, and everybody goes, oh, well, I guess that doesn't please you, mama. And she says, you're right. It doesn't please me. Now, would you please me? Would you make my joy complete? Yes, mama. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And the same thing is true of a church. If a pastor ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Why? Because I go around making you all miserable. No, that's not what it says. What, what, what a mother would say, what a pastor says, what Paul's saying is, please me, let me be relaxed, give me joy. Well, how do you give a pastor joy? How do you give a mother joy? How do you give a father joy? You give them joy by not fighting with your brothers and sisters. And the Apostle Paul is not above making it very personal, is he? Think about it. You've got three ways of handling conflict in the home. The dad's sitting in his easy chair and his sons are on the floor. 
the sons start fighting. There are three options the father has. One of the options is what? Ignore it. Yeah, you just ignore it, you know. Perfectly oblivious. What's the second option? Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, lay down the law, you know, and, and how would you do it? Somebody yell out. You're the dad. Go ahead. Huh? Okay, you spank them both. You say, would you guys quit your hassling with each other? Would you just shut up? If you can't, if you can't play without fighting, then go outside, you know. In other words, anything but addressing the matters of the heart. One is, I don't see it. The second is, you're a pain in the rear. And then the third is what? The third is, is there any compassion in Christ? Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Would you make my joy complete? Now, which one is the Father? The third one. The third one. Right? There's no question. The third one's the Father. And it's hard to say of the first and second which one is more disgusting. I think the more disgusting man is the one that acts like he doesn't see it. That just makes me vomit. Because you know he sees it. You know he hears it. You know he's completely aware, but oh, he's completely above it. And I'll bet you anything, if you took the first and second and asked the same woman which one she found more disgusting, it would be the first one. She wouldn't like the second one. But the first one, acting like he doesn't see anything going on. The Apostle Paul is completely aware of what's going on in a church that he used to serve. Think about that. It's not even his present church. (laughs) And he's completely aware of what? Of their division. In fact, he even knows two women that are at the center of the division. Yodia and Syntyche, I plead with you to agree with one another in the Lord. I always bring up with that that it's such a priceless thing that the Word of God records Yodia and Syntyche throughout all history in the inspired Word of God as two women who would not agree with one another in the Lord. Why do I think it's precious? Well, because it allows all of us to just be normal sinners and to realize that we stand in a long line. Many have gone before us. There's nothing unusual about us. There's no sin but which is common to man, and God has made a way. All right? And the way is to hear the appeal of the Apostle Paul, to hear the appeal of our parents, to hear the appeal of our pastors, and to say, you know, we do have a lot in common. To say, you know, we do have encouragement in Christ. You know, there is consolation of love. You know, there is fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You know, there is affection and compassion. And you know, I do want my pastor and my elders to have joy. And sometimes what you won't do out of your love... For your sibling, you will do out of your love for your father. And you will say, okay, I'll be at peace. Right? So then we move on and it says, 
How are we to make his joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, having the same spirit, united in spirit, and having the same purpose, intent on one purpose? So the way that we make his joy complete is one mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose. Now, how do you get one mind, one love, one spirit, and one purpose? How do you get it? Well, the two great competing methods in the church today, one way is by using the wealth of America to create enough space that nobody has to rub up against each other. Now, think this through with me. One way, and it's the wrong way, is by using the wealth of America to create enough space that you'll never have to rub up against each other. Now, how would we do that? Well, uh, Mary Lee and I always drive two separate cars to church on Sunday morning. And that's how we have one mind, one spirit. That's how we're one. We have enough money that we can have two cars. When we were young, we barely had one car. But now we have two cars, and so we never, ever, ever have to fight in the car on the way to church Sunday morning. So those of you that want one mind, one heart, one spirit, work hard, and in a few years you will have two cars. And listen, that method is employed all over the place. When you have a very tiny house or a one-room house, it's very difficult to have one mind, one spirit. But when you have enough money to be able to have 7, 8, 10 rooms, 12 rooms, 14 rooms in Hyde Park, what, 57 rooms? By the time you're Bill Gates, 3,455 rooms? And what happens? Well, everybody can choose to go their own way. Mary Lee and I never use the same bathroom. Why? Well, you don't have to fight about the toothpaste or the toilet paper or the towels or anything. You know, the most endearing thing about my wife is she never pushes the button down when she gets done a shower. Right. So when we go into a motel room and I get in the shower, I have to remember (laughs) before I turn it on or I'm going to get. Right. So when we're at home, what do we do? Two separate bathrooms. Now, there is somebody I share a bathroom with, and that's my son. And it is irritating. I cannot tell you how many times when he gets done using my shower and I go waltzing in the bathroom and get in the shower. And the shower is over. And you know what happens next? It's time for towels. And, of course, I don't want to go naked down the hallway because in our house, everybody can see you when you're in the hallway. So what am I supposed to do? Sit in the room. Can I have a towel, please? <laughs> or I could use the spread on the, on, on, on the bed. Or I could maybe use a washcloth. But I'm rather big. <laughs> now you know more than you've ever wanted to know about our home. So what happens is we use wealth and we create multitude of bathrooms and we never have to be angry at each other because the towel's gone. Do you understand this? And this is exactly what happens in churches. We use the wealth 
in order to keep from ever having to be melded together. If you don't like bands playing, then what you do is you have a second worship service where bands don't play. Right? And the elders are so wise. Our church is united. We have people that despise bands and people that despise organs, and they live together in the same church, do they? Do they have one mind? Do they have one purpose? Do they submit to one authority? Absolutely not. We have enough money, and we just create multiple worship services. If you don't like Sunday, there's Saturday. If you don't like liturgy, there's no liturgy. If you don't like reform, everything's a choice. In fact, we have enough wealth that if you don't like your pastor, there are 25 other ones within three blocks who will vie for your loyalty. Kiss your pastor off. Go where you want to. And no, we don't think there are no churches that are as good as this church. We think other churches are just as biblical. We have enough wealth to have, a cor- to have every corner have a, have a church on it. And it's all your preference. Nobody's ever rebelling. Nobody's ever refusing to be of one mind. Nobody's ever refusing to be of one spirit. Nobody's ever sinning. It's just personal choice. You see? This is how it works. You don't have to make his joy complete because who is he? Paul anyhow? I mean, really? And who's Yodia and Sintiki? I mean, really? You know? I'm sick of those women. I'm going somewhere else. Do you understand this? This is what happens in the American church. We have a wealth of churches and a wealth of sanctuaries and a wealth of seats. It used to be that one of the most intense battles in churches was who got to sit where. Okay, you read anything about colonial times, you'll know it was a huge deal. You'll know that there were fights that went for years when a new sanctuary was being built over who would get to buy what pew. Forget that. Every seat is perfect. No columns in front of anybody. Slope down. And if you don't like the seat in that service, you can go to the earlier service because there isn't a competition. And if you don't like people and their smells, because there are bad smells associated with people, then you can go into the overflow room where you just have a video screen. Not a chance of ever smelling the pastor there. Although they're saying that they're going to soon come out with chemicals that will accompany the movies so that you can have the smells too. And that'll be good because you'll have even the smell of the pastor without him. Because really, what we'd really like is to get all of our teaching and all of our instruction and all of our authority through a video screen. Through DVDs, through television, through books. You know, because there's so much more spiritual than Tim. Because I know Tim. I've been at his house for dinner. And I've been to the office. I've seen his desk. R.C. Sproul doesn't have a desk like that. You know? Rick Warren would never be messy or have bad breath. I mean, what kind of a witness would that be? And he wouldn't make us feel uncomfortable. Like I feel right now. (laughs) 
Everything about the Apostle Paul is personal. The Apostle Paul puts himself directly at the center of the fighting and bickering in a church. And he says, do we share anything? Is there anything about our lives that's similar? Do you even know Jesus Christ? Would you make my joy complete? And we go, Paul, get off your pedestal. You know, it's not about you. There are principles at stake here. Principles. Very interesting in this text that Calvin talks about doctrine. And I'm reading Calvin on the text and I'm thinking, what on earth does this text have to do with doctrine? There's, this is one text in Scripture that is not about doctrine. And Calvin's like off on doctrine, right? But then I got thinking about it. And what he's talking about is how the unity of a church and the proper doctrine that it has are always completely bound up with each other. Where you have division, you have heresy. And I got thinking about that, and I thought, of course, why? Well, think about it. If you're a person that wants to have a party spirit, what do you do? Go around to other people and say, hey, would you join my party spirit? No. What you do is say, hey, have you noticed that the pastor is not giving the proper emphasis to... Have you noticed that the elders seem to be... My dear sister, uh, I would like to talk to you about a concern I have. Uh, have you noticed that uh, people don't uh, eh, uh, people people don't seem to take me eh, seriously enough? Eh, you know, I am not given the dignity that I ought to have. Eh, Nobody ever comes up to you and says, join my schismatic group. (laughs) No, there has to be a justification. The justification is always false doctrine. What is true about Gilbert Bilizekian? None of you know who he is. Gilbert Bilizekian wants a bunch of people to follow him. He's a party spirit. He's a schismatic. So what does he do? He thinks, you know what? Let's find the doctrine today that is most likely to be despised by the people of God. And if I attack that doctrine, I'll have a big following and I'll be a muckety muck. And so he looks around and he says, submission. In America today, I'll bet people don't like submission. I will attack submission. So he attacks submission, but he thinks, you know, you can't just go around promoting rebellion because, after all, I am a professor, and I grade papers, and that is authority, and I wear a hood when I process at commencement, and I have a Ph.D., and so we can't quite attack all authority, can we? I mean, there is something at stake here for some of us. So what I'll do is I'll attack male authority. Because you know something? Women are waiting to be set free. The Spirit is teaching us new things today. (laughs) And so Gilbert Bilizekian goes around the country saying those who joined 2,000 years of Christian in saying that Eve is not to exercise authority over Adam. They're all wrong, and he actually, in the pages of Discipleship Journal, 
labels their doctrine and practice demonic. And everybody drinks up from his well because his eyes are fat and he's sleek and he doesn't suffer like the rest of us. And we think, well, that must be God speaking. And the whole church is divided over the meaning of manhood and womanhood. And then it's divided over homosexuality. And we think, you know, I never thought I'd see that to happen. But, of course, we were all silent when it said there was no significance to manhood and womanhood. And we sow the wind, we reap the whirlwind, and we still refuse to see that Gilbert Bilizekian is just a plain old boring schismatic. We say, no, 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 he's not a schismatic. He just has a different doctrinal position. I say, no, he's a schismatic. He's dividing the church. He's destroying souls. You say, you know, Tim, there you go again. You're so over the top. And I say, well, then, all right, fine. Gilbert Zilazekian is not a schismatic. Then would you please name for me one person today in the church who has the legitimacy of the evangelical world who is a schismatic? Name me one. Don't do it. But name me one. I mean, there should be somebody that you can name and say, I tell you again, if any man comes to you and says this, let him be anathema. And you say, well, but nobody's teaching circumcision today. So, of course, we shouldn't be able to label anyone because Paul put that to death. And thank God for 2,000 years we've had peace. Then I say, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Who are you saying that about today? And you say, well, thank God Martin Luther did it. 500 years ago so that we wouldn't have to do it today. I say, oh, yeah, yeah. The church is so united today. We have different worship services. We drive in different cars. We have multitude of bathrooms, right? We even have different Bibles, and nothing's at stake. You choose your NLT. I choose my NASB. Nothing's at stake. And there's no division. And nothing matters. Because truth is relative. And we call that peace. My dear friend Gilbert Pilazekian, I esteem him. We have a difference of opinion, but I esteem him. Okay, I'm wrong about Gilbert Bilizekian, you think. Then show me, where is the attack of Satan on the unity of the church today? If it isn't manhood and womanhood, show me, show me. Where is it? Where is it? doesn't matter if other churches don't ever raise that issue because nothing's at stake. Isn't that nice? We have the wealth to be, what's the word? Uh, um, big. But that's not the word I want. There's some word. We have the wealth to be magnanimous. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I'm saying? And Paul, he'll have none of it. He'll have none of it. Do we share anything? Do you know Jesus Christ? Is there any comfort of the Spirit? Then make my joy complete. By what? By having one mind. You say, well, there we go again. One mind. Uniformity. Uniformity is bad. Diversity is good. The more diversity, the more unity. Because as you tolerate diversity and pluralism, then you have unity because it doesn't matter. Everything is postmodern. Everything is relative. And we can all just have our own opinions and get along with it. I mean, can't we all just get along? You know? 
You're not wrong, and I'm not wrong. You're right, and I'm right. You and I are right at the same time. We're right about everything always at the same time. This is diversity. This is inclusivity. This is pluralism. This is who we are. There's nothing at stake. Let's have two minds. Not one. Let's have three. Let's have four. Let's have five. Let's have 350 million minds. And it'll all work out just like it does in the Middle East. You know, we got three minds. We got Christians, and who cares about them? They're a minority. Let them die. And then we got the Jews, and we got, and the Jews are small, but the whole wealth of the Western world is at stake with the Jews, so we'll defend them. The, Jew, the Christians don't matter. Forget them. Palestinian Christians, they don't exist. All right. And then you got the Arabs, and everybody knows Islam is, is a religion of peace. Right? And so where are we? Well, we got three minds, kind of two minds in the Middle East, and we just have to teach them how to get along with each other because one day God will show that all paths lead to the same place. I can't wait for that day. And in the church, there's not one doctrine that evangelicals are willing to stand on. Not one. Not one. Because the only doctrine we were willing to stand on was the doctrine of Scripture. And when gender-neutral Bibles came out, we threw that one out the roof. It's done. Evangelicals are now the ones purveying Bibles that are unfaithful to the text of Scripture. And nothing matters. And that's who we are. We have no unity. And therefore, we have no peace. Because the only way to have peace is unified in the doctrine of Scripture. That's why Scripture exists. As we submit to Scripture, we have unity. So this is why Calvin talks about the connection between proper doctrine and peace in a church. Because he looks at this. And he says, you know something, every time there's division, it's always about false doctrine. And every time there's division, false doctrine inevitably comes. And every time false doctrine is taught, inevitably division comes. I read an article this last week in a Roman Catholic newspaper. I've been subscribing to this newspaper for 30 years. It's ultramontane, which means it is ultra-Orthodox. These people are faithful to the Pope till death. All right? No liberals here. And they were explaining how the Pope could, ex could say that other churches that are Christian are not true churches. All right? And you know what they said? They said that where do you think the church was until the Reformation? It was the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was the church until the Reformation. So in other words, all you Protestants that are now alienated from the true church, you need to realize that you would have been a Catholic if you'd been in the first 1,500 years of the church. Very sneaky, isn't it? And all of a sudden it hit me, no, no, no. Do you know before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church did not exist? The Roman Catholic Church came to exist with the Council of Trent. <laughs> Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. It was not until Rome said that all those who taught that justification by faith alone was what was the true doctrine of Scripture were anathema. 
That was the point at which the Roman Catholic Church came to exist. And we pray for the day that the Roman Catholic Church will cease to exist by repenting of the Council of Trent. And until then, we are the true unity of the Church of Christ. We And there is something at stake. Souls really are at stake. People really were misled by the sacramentalism of Rome and by the indulgent practice that said that when the coin went into the box, that a soul sprang free from purgatory. It really does matter if you teach that. And now Protestants stand in the line of Scripture throughout all history. If you go to the Reformers and you read what they say to the Roman Catholic Church, what they say over and over and over again is, we are the ones that stand in line in harmony with the godly men who have studied Scripture throughout the ages. Who is the second most quoted person in Calvin's Institutes? Nobody's gotten it yet. No, I don't think so. I'm I'm hesitant to disagree with you. I believe the second most quoted is Bernard of Clairvaux. What was Bernard of Clairvaux? You're going to tell me a Roman Catholic. I'm going to say no, he was a Christian. Bernard of Clairvaux was a man of God. He is our heritage. So when the Roman Catholic Church says that prior to the Reformation, we existed, I say, no, you don't exist until the Council of Trent. When you deny the teaching of Scripture, you are in schism. And you say, we have a monster for a pastor. He would call the Roman Catholic Church in schism. People, this is what all the reformers did. Have we forgotten so quickly? We are the true church of Jesus Christ. It's always about God. It's not about my ego. I have a large ego. It's not about my ego. Your father's sitting in the living room and he says, Is there any love of Jesus among you, sons? Is there any compassion? Have you experienced Jesus Christ? Make my joy complete. And you look at him and you say, You egotistical idiot. It's always about you, isn't it? You know, that's why your leaders, when they call you to submission and discipline you, are not being proud. They're being humble. Do you understand that? In today's culture, can you understand that it's the humble man that fights for your soul? He's not proud. He's making an ass of himself in front of 200 people on Sunday morning. And your elders call you into a session meeting and they rebuke you. Do you think they're doing that because they're proud? Do you think they wouldn't give their right arm to escape from that meeting? This text has real application to your lives. God hates rebellion. God hates schism. God hates false doctrine. And those people who live as if they're above it, and it's all simply a choice and a lifestyle and a personal conviction, are people who know nothing of God. Nothing. 
You can't say you love God and defy the doctrine of Scripture. Because to love God is to love truth. And His Word is truth. Do you understand this? Now, what does it require for us to be united? Well, the Apostle Paul ends with a bunch of negatives. Look at them. Do you see them there? Here are the negatives. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Selfishness, nothing. Nothing out of selfishness and vain conceit. Nothing. Remember when we were reading, I said, that ain't going to happen. We are little conceit-making, self-affirming machines. Or Calvin says that, maybe it was Matthew Henry, says that uh, we are all kings to ourselves, waiting to receive the adulation and glorification of the crowds. And then it says, don't do anything out of vain conceit and selfishness. In other words, that's how unity comes. We consider others better than ourselves. That's what you always sit there thinking, right? Every Sunday morning, look around and say, he's so much better than I am. Somebody compliments somebody. You say, not only that, but did you know he did such and such, which is good? No, no, no. What you always do is the minute somebody's complimented, you then come up with a criticism. Ah, yes, but. <laughs> yes, but, you know. We can't bear to have anybody else complimented and not have some little tweaking of it so that we feel justified, that we're not quite losing our egos. You know what America is today? America is one big self-esteem manufacturing machine. And all its religion is just like that. All its preaching, all its teaching, all its religious books. First, first, always first, It affirms the self-esteem of the writer whose picture is handsome and is glossy and is on the slipcover. And many people say wonderful things about him for many pages of the book. Right? You've all seen it, right? Handsome man. He was such a handsome man. And the whole back of the dust jacket has his picture on it, right? And everybody says how good he is. And when they say how good he is, what do they tell you? They tell you that he has, if he takes off, all right, they tell you that he has how many people in his church? Come on, how many? Come on, how many? You know, how many people does Rick Warren run on a Sunday morning? Come on. How many? You're way behind the times. Yeah, about 30 now. How about Joel Osteen? Okay, how about Tim Keller? Tim Keller, I read this last week, has planted a hundred churches, and that's his claim to fame. A hundred churches. Okay? How about D. James Kennedy? How about Billy Graham? How about R.C. Sproul? Huh? Why should you read their book? I tell you again, you want to know? Ask them to take off their shirt. 
The Apostle Paul, when he took off his shirt, what did you see? The brand marks of Jesus. Is that what is used to sell books in evangelical publishing today? No, it is not. Again and again, when the Apostle Paul wants to prove his truthfulness, he shows his brand marks, his foolishness, his suffering, his shipwreckedness. The number of times he was stormed, he was, he was shipwrecked. The number of times that he went without food, without water, again and again, it's his suffering. And America says, you are a paragon of holiness when all men speak well of you. But Jesus says, beware when all men speak well of you. Do you understand that? Everything about America is about building the self-esteem of the preacher as long as he builds the self-esteem of his readers and his parishioners. You see, it's a big conspiracy. The preacher will say good things about you if you say good things about him and buy his books and pay him well. And that's what the American religious business is. I grew up in it. That's what it is. That's what we're all doing to each other. Now, you say I'm wrong. That America really is about peace, about harmony, and about humility. That's what evangelicalism is, right? That's what we all think, right? Then let me ask you, did you read the end of Acts 28 in our scripture lesson this morning? Did you see the end of it? Open your Bibles and look at the end of Acts 28. The whole book of Acts is how to preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul's up in Rome and he's preaching the gospel, all right? And it gives a summary of what he said. He reasoned with them. He showed them from both Moses and the prophets. You remember that, all right? And then after quite a while of evangelistic crusades in his rented apartment, all right, what does it say, okay? It says, verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe, And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. Now, it's the end of your evangelistic crusade. Many have believed. What do you say? It's the end of your evangelistic crusade. Many have believed. What do you say? Here's what Paul said. Paul said... Go to this people and say, he says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive for their heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. Now, that's pretty obnoxious. But notice the end. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. (laughs) Oh, man. None of us can feel it. We can't even feel it. In other words, all right, people, you're God's chosen people. Your time is up. They will listen. They will listen.
you will not begin to grow spiritually, nor will your church, nor will your children, until you learn to recognize how completely pandering to you, your religious leaders, your prophets, your scholars, your authors, your talk shows, your television shows, your pastors and your elders are to you. Until you learn to see how they are pandering to your desire for self-esteem, okay, you will never grow because you'll be weak women who nasty men will worm their way into your home. I'm only quoting scripture and mislead you. But once you learn to see that you are being misled by people who are flattering you, And telling you that what you really need is self-esteem. And what you really need to understand is that woman is the apex of creation. I read this morning, Joel and Chris, I read your article about captivating by what's her name and his name, John and Stacey Eldridge. And you pointed out how the whole book panders to women's desire to be self-esteem full. And how Eldridge and his wife talk about how women is the apex of creation because she was created last. And this morning at the first sermon, I said to the people, I said, okay, right. Um, Woman is the apex of creation. Uh, Do you think maybe you could build a following by saying that to women today? You know, Shelly, you, not Chris, he's an idiot. You are the apex. Midge? George is a, is a, he's a, you, you, in fact, you and your sisters and the mothers and all the women that nursed us and, and all those sensitive people who, if we had wars would stop them. You are the final thing created. You're the crown of God's creation. And that's what John and Stacey Eldridge, John and Stacey Eldridge have built their evangelical kingdom on. And is it true? Is it true? No. Who is the crown of creation, according to Scripture? Man. Because why? Because man alone bears the image of God. So what does Tim mean when he says man? I don't mean man as male. I mean man, woman, together. We are the crown of creation. So why is this guy separating off the women and saying they're the crown of creation? Because he's a divisive, schismatic man. Because he's just like the false shepherds in the, in the church in Galatia. He's trying to create a falling. He's trying to count your foreskins. And you should have nothing to do with people like that. People that flatter you so that you can be just one more boring American that thinks that to be woman, to be feminine, is to be divine. What does that have to do with the Bible? It's insane. And it's not until you realize that God says what to you. Have nothing to do with vainness and self-conceit. Consider the other sex better than your sex. And then what? Guess what? Unity will come. Mitch will look at George and say, you know, he's so much more godly than I am. He's so much more godly than I am. And George will look at Mitch and say, oh no, I am scum. 
you, you are a woman of God. And then we'll have unity. You know, maybe you don't love me. But if you love me, make my joy complete. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found as a man, he humbled himself to death. Even death on a cross. You resent the band when the band demands your body and worship. Wait until the band of heaven demands it. Wait until that moment when God himself will demand that his son has a name that's above every name. And every one of you will have your hands raised. You'll be clapping. You'll be making total fools of yourself. Just like every single person at the Yes concert does. Because then you will be released to worship God instead of your idols. And on that day, the Bible says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you can't have any of that spirit in you now. You know why? Because you're proud, because you're schismatic, because you will not worship God, because the glory in this place is to come to you. That's the truth. And so I say, is there any comfort? Is there any spirit that we share? Do we love Jesus? Have we seen him? Do we have his mind? Do you want to make me happy? Then be united. Be united. Consider others better than yourselves.